Hosea chapter 7. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 7 this evening, but I will read to verse 16 to set the context. And also chapter 6, verse 11b goes, I think, with chapter 7. So I'll begin reading at chapter 6, verse 11b, when I return. This is the word of the living and true God. When I return the captives of my people, when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered and the wickedness of Samaria. For they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by a baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. They prepare their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria, wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart, and they wailed upon their beds. When they wailed upon their beds, they assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me, though I disciplined and strengthened their arms. Yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Amen. Well, let us pray. But Lord, our God, help us to understand the serious nature of sin. Help us to understand your justice. Help us to understand your omniscience uh, and its relation to the sins that people commit. Help us to see your goodness and mercy in Christ. Thank you, O God, that you uh, remember the sins of your people no more. But there is a terrifying reality that those who do not know Christ, you remember their sins. And so help us to be sober-minded as we come to this text this night. There are difficult things for us to understand and go through. And so we ask once again that you would send forth your spirit. Help us to understand the seriousness of sin. Help us to be watchful in our own lives against sin. Help us to recognize the forgiveness we have in Christ, but also that you are a God who sees all things. And help us to recognize as well that sin can boil over, sin can uh, um, uh, burn, sin can grow. And help us to be watchful against this, we pray. Help us to stamp it out in Christ by faith and help us by your spirit to walk in a way that is pleasing unto you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for uh, your mercy. But help us to see the serious reality of where sin leads and the uh, judgment that sin deserves. So we pray that you would rebuke this night. We pray that you would convince this night. We pray that you would reprove this night. And in many ways, we also ask that you would encourage this night as well. So be with your people. Be pleased to save sinners. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, when it comes to parenting, sometimes you let children take their lumps so they learn by natural consequences. Other times you have to instruct them so that they don't do permanent damage. And certainly a good example of this is with a hot burning stove. And the idea of the hot burning stove goes with that latter focus when it comes to parenting. We do not want them to burn lest they do permanent damage. And the idea of a burning oven is very important for us this night because it's a very good picture of what sin is. Hosea talks about the seriousness of sin, how it grows, how it builds, how it burns by this analogy of a hot oven that grows over night. And it's meant to show Israel the seriousness of their sin, how their wicked ways have grown and it burns like a flaming fire. It's an apt image to describe the growing nature of sin. And that sin in Israel has been growing for quite some time. The prophet Hosea has come on the scene around the 8th century, but Israel has engaged in quite a bit of sin for quite a long time. And we see, especially in the northern kingdom where Hosea is prophesying, we see that there was no king in Israel. They continually engaged in, or there there was a king, uh, but there was no good king in Israel. They continually did what was wicked. They continually went against the worship of Yahweh. They continually engaged in spiritual adultery, which was expressed in actual literal adultery and many other domestic sins that Israel engaged in because they did not honor God. God most high. They were not molded by the worship of God. Instead, they were molded by their own worship and by their own ways, which then overflowed into the sins that they committed. And the main message of Hosea is Hosea's marriage, the wickedness, the heinousness of spiritual adultery. And it's a a very um, potent picture of uh, Hosea's actual marriage. And so we've come to the section about a forgetful people begins in chapter six, goes all the way to chapter 11. Last time we saw a fair weather people, a people who acknowledged God with their lips, but their hearts were far from them, from him, a people that were like a morning cloud. Their faithfulness just goes away like that. There is no substance with it. And so what are we to do with that fair weather people? We now begin to see the effects of wicked worship on the society of this theocratic nation, of this theocratic people. Their domestic sins are now exposed all the more and explained in the idea of the image of a burning oven, how it burns and how it grows. And the problem is very clear, how sin burns, how sin grows, how sin builds and how sin consumes. But another problem that we see here is how sin blinds. We see both ignorance on Israel's part. They don't even see the oven. They don't even feel the heat. They don't even recognize what's going on. We see their ignorance and the consumption that comes from that sin. Sin blinds, especially in times of economic prosperity, failures to recognize their own sin, failure to recognize God who is omniscient. That is what sin can do. And sin also consumes. Sins committed can grow. And as they grow, you don't just affect yourself, but you can affect other people as well. Lusts and desires can grow in intensity. And those lusts can grow in the effect that they have upon other people. And so Yahweh, 
through the prophet Hosea is exposing this very sin. And he's warning Israel concerning where their sin is going to lead. And so in Hosea 6, 11b to 7, 7, Yahweh uncovers Israel's wickedness and compares it to an all-consuming oven. He's exposing it. He is showing them that he sees all of it. And he compares it to the, this idea of this all-consuming oven. And so we'll look at this idea of burning with sin, this all-consuming sin under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see Israel's uncovered iniquity. Chapter 6, 11b to 7, 3. Israel's uncovered iniquity. And then we'll see Israel's burning adultery in verses 4 through 7. So Israel's uncovered iniquity and Israel's burning adultery. So let's first look at Israel's uncovered iniquity. 6, 11a to 7, 3. And again, the context is with respect to Israel's unfaithfulness. They were unfaithful in their worship, and that then affects them with respect to their daily life. That's why worship is so vital and so important, mainly because we were created to worship. That's why God made us to honor and glorify him and to praise him. Certainly, uh, we do it every day of the week, but especially as we gather as the people of God, we worship and honor and glorify him according to what his word has said. But that also has effects on our daily living. If we come and hear about Christ, if we come and are molded by Christ, hopefully that helps us throughout the rest of the week. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, that God sent Christ gives gifts to the church. He sends men to the church for a specific purpose, for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, and for the building up of the body. Why? That you might not be carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You are equipped and strengthened throughout the rest of the week. That if you are in Christ, if you're the new man in him, then you will be molded by who he is and you will put him on and uh, seek to honor him throughout the week. So we worship according to God's way, not because, we, uh, because of what his word said, but also because it is good for us to do so. God molds us. God shapes us. And certainly it's like exercise. You don't always see the results right away. But the more consistent we are, the better off we will be in this world. Because it has effects throughout the rest of the week. If you struggle with a certain sin and you're not attending church, you know what I would say to you? The first thing is come to church. Because that then can affect you throughout the rest of the week. As we hear more about Christ, as we put on the mind of Christ, it is vital and important. And we see that very clearly here with Israel. As we transition uh, to deal with dealing with their domestic sins. They're faithless when it comes to their worship. They acknowledge God with their lips, but they're far from God. They, he desires mercy and not sacrifice and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. They've transgressed the covenant. The priest engage in wickedness the priests aren't teaching the people and that spills out to the people of God as well so we see their faithfulness in worship and their faith unfaithful or unfaithfulness in worship and unfaithfulness in life and so we see their iniquity uncovered proper in 6 a to 7 1 he starts off by talking about a time of healing when I return the captives of my people, when I would have healed Israel. Now, there's a lot of difficult things about Hosea. I think we've seen that as we've gone through. And this is also very difficult as well. What is he referring to here? Some people say it's referring to a time after exile. 
that could possibly be in view. Some people think that it's just referring to another time of God's reprieve. God did provide that for the northern kingdom under Jeroboam II. He did provide some economic prosperity. He did provide some political stability. And the hope would be that that restoration, that that time of reprieve is not just economic, not just political, but the hope is that it would be spiritual. So that could be in view here as well. God would have done this. God has done this. He's provided that time of reprieve, but it just exposed their sins all the more. So that could be in view. Or perhaps it's just a general reference to show God's goodness and the people abusing it. When I would have restored your fortune. That language is used in Job 42.10. After, you know, all the calamities happen to Job, he loses his family. He has sickness and illness and that sort of thing. And he cries out to God and God tells, doesn't tell him anything. He just says, you're man, I'm God. You need to worship me. And God restores his fortune. That's the language that is there. The idea of restoration. So maybe it's not referring to exile. Maybe it's just another time of reprieve. But one thing is very clear. It is talking about how Israel has abused the goodness of God. Israel has used the goodness of God as an excuse to live any way they sort of want to. God will just accept us. God will just be good to us. We can live any way in which we please. But Yahweh exposes their wickedness. He exposes their hearts. The hope is, dear brethren, if we are redeemed in Christ, we will want to honor God, not look at all the ways we can go against God, not saying we don't have struggles and difficulties and remaining corruption and sins. We all got those things. But there is a very clear difference between one who's like, I want to honor God, but I struggle with sin. I hate sin, but I love sin versus one who's like, I want to live any way I want to. It doesn't matter what God thinks. It doesn't matter what God says, but I just want to do what I wish. Very different. And so Israel certainly is the latter at this point. When I would have returned, when I would have healed them, but then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered. It's a time of revealing for them. And if it is that second meaning, that idea of what happens when there's this time of reprieve in this time of economic prosperity, God exposes their sin. And again, there was that relief under Jeroboam II. But now the conditions are worsening. God exposes sin in all sorts of ways. He exposes sins in times of material prosperity, but he also exposes sins in times of economic crises as well. There's heavy taxation that is going on for the people. Time of prosperity to a time of much more turmoil and concern. And the point is, again, Israel has abused the goodness of God and God uncovers them. They only have a desire for material things. That's why they worship, isn't it? That's why they worship the Baals. That's why they worship Molech. That's why they worship the other gods. It is to get something from God. That is their focus. They are mercenaries. Their idol is money. Their idol is mammon. And they're trying to get that any way possible. I'm going to worship this God. Maybe he'll help. I'm going to worship that God. Maybe he'll help. I'm going to put Yahweh in there as well. And maybe we'll get something out of it. That is their desire. Rather than coming to the household of God and honoring him according to what his word says. And God had given them so many good things. God had saved them and brought them up out of the land of Egypt. God had been kind to them, yet it was not enough. They wanted what they wanted according to their terms. 
and they worship the things that they wished, and they become exactly like what they worship. God sees it all. And we see this, this idea. He sees their iniquity. It's uncovered, their wickedness of Samaria. Remember, Ephraim's the dominant tribe in the north. That's why sometimes Israel, Ephraim are interchanged. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. So Samaria is referenced here. It's also in Amos 5, uh, Amos 5 and 8. Amos is also a prophet to the northern kingdom at the same time or around the same time as Hosea. And so Samaria, there's wickedness, there's iniquity. It is uncovered. And he goes on to explain exactly what this is. Thievery, deceit, fraud. They have committed fraud. Could just be a general breach of faith. Could refer to lies, could refer to false testimony. But we see that crime is high. Crime is high in the courts. We're going to see that with the king. But crime is rampant throughout the nation as well. And we see this in the language of the thieves. A thief comes, a thief comes in to one's house. A thief comes into one's house. He plunders and he steals and he pillages and nothing happens. There is no justice in the land. So there are thieves in the house, but notice there are thieves outside the camp as well. It doesn't matter where you go. There are thieves everywhere. There is no justice in the land. A thief comes in, a band of robber takes the spoil outside. There is a high crime rate in the land. And brethren, if you're paying attention to what's going on in Canada, have we not recognized and seen the decline when it comes to justice in the land and the decline when it comes to thievery in the land and the decline when it comes to petty crimes in the land, how people get off scot-free uh, for doing certain things, uh, but other people, and it's politically motivated, they go to jail for long periods of time, whether Canada or the United States. But the point is thievery. The point is Canada is beginning to look like a third world country. I'm sorry to say it like that, dear brethren. I'm not supposed to be political here, but I'm just pointing out that there's a parallel, that there's a clear example right in front of us when it comes to the things that are happening in this country because there is no justice in the land. Now, just caveat, I'm not equating theocratic Israel with Canada. I'm just pointing out when there is no justice in the land, one way to tell is uh, that there, it's, it's spiraling out of control is when crime is rampant. And you'd think that with Israel as a theocracy, they should have known better. God warned them. God told them. God gave them the law. And yet they did not listen. Thief comes into the house. There's thievery in the house. A band of robbers takes spoil outside. And as we saw last time, the priests are engaging in robbery like a band of robbers as well. Their idol is, uh, is money. Their idol is material things and whatever they can get uh, with respect to that so their iniquity is uncovered and notice their iniquity is before Yahweh verses two and three they did not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness they did not have a holy conversation with themselves they did not talk to themselves that is the language that is used here they did not utter in their hearts they did not speak to themselves about who God is and again, notice we see here the reference to a God who is omniscient and the God who is a just judge. And once again, theology proper is applicable, isn't it? It's applicable for those not in Christ, those who are under sin, and it is applicable for the people of God as well. And I'll explain that uh, in just a moment. But he's exposing the state of their hearts. 
He sees inwardly. God knows all things. We think we can hide things from God. There are things that you and I think that nobody else sees, but God sees those very things. And the people themselves haven't even pondered God. God is not on their mind. They haven't even thought about him. They haven't contemplated him. The only purpose for God is to get things out of him. And so they want to cover all their bases. But what does he say throughout this book? And as we've seen through already throughout the first seven chapters, lack of knowledge. They do not know the Lord. They do not honor him. They are unfaithful when it comes to the things of God. And McKay says Hosea's contemporaries did not deny the existence of the Lord. They did not deny the existence of the Lord. They just ignored him when it became, when it came to ordinary living. They just didn't want to think of him. They knew he was there, but they just, nah, I don't really need you until I need you and want to get things from you. That is how they viewed God. God was made in their image rather than recognizing that God is the one who made them. They did not consider him. They did not consider his omniscience. They did not consider that he is the just judge, even though he's warned them, even though he's told them, even though he's demonstrated his justice in the past, in their history, yet they did not listen. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. God remembers their sins. And then he goes on to describe uh, Yahweh's inquiry and to further explain the seriousness of their sin. Now, their own deeds have surrounded them. It's the image of an army. It's the image of no way out. Their sins have surrounded them. Their sins are witness against them. Their sins are evidence of what they have done. And God sees all of it. They have no escape. Yahweh sees them there before my face. I see their sin. I know their sin. I recognize what they are doing. They have said and have not remembered me, but they are before my face. That is true. That's why the psalmist says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that there is no God, but the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Even when it comes to worship, it's not that other people don't worship. They just don't worship the true and living God and they don't worship him aright. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But now it's coming from the people of God. And so God sees, God knows they are before his face. And notice to further describe the state of the people in verse 3. Now, verse 3 could go with verse 4. Again, some commentators said verse 3 goes with verse 4 and following, or it goes with verse, verses 1 and 2. Not a big deal, but... We're certainly going to transition to talk about the king's court in just a moment, or at least the king's court as an important um, indicator. But we see here one way to tell and show the sins of the people is also found in the conduct of the king. Remember in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. That was what the king was supposed to do, wasn't it? According to Deuteronomy chapter 17. He was supposed to meditate on the law of the Lord. He was supposed to preserve worship and preserve justice. That's why when we talk about whether, when we see in the Bible, uh, the language uh, referring to whether a king did good or evil, it has to do with worship. He broke down the high places. He restored the worship to the true and living God, or he worshiped on the high places. He worshiped to the Baals. It has to do with worship. That was one area the king was supposed to be responsible, especially preserving it and protecting it and making sure it was right. But they, the people, 
make the king glad with their wickedness. The king loves wickedness. The king loves corruption. And the people make this king glad. And the princes with their lies. It shows the heart of the king. And it shows the heart of the people as well. Well, the king prefers wickedness. Let us engage in wickedness. But the high king of heaven knows all things. And he sees all things. And one thing we can take away from this section, brethren, is how God knows sins and God sees all things. If you're an unbeliever here today, when we talk about the sins of the unregenerate, God sees all things. And one thing that will be exposed on the day of judgment, as Romans 2 says, is all the secret things that nobody sees. You see, one wicked thought is enough to damn someone to hell forever, isn't it? We sin against a holy God. We sin against an infinite God. Therefore, we deserve an infinite punishment. That's why we need one who is infinite to be the sacrifice for us, to die in our stead and to have the justice of God poured out upon him in our stead. But God sees and knows all things. That's why the way to flee the judgment to come is only in Christ Jesus. For God will punish for all sins sins that are committed with our hands that we actually do, that people actually see, sins that are committed with our words that people actually hear, and sins that are committed with our minds that nobody actually sees. But God sees all things. And one thing that Henry highlights is that you cannot say to God on that judgment day that you did not know. If you're here tonight, I'm warning you. God's warning you. God has told you. God has said that you will die in your trespasses and sins unless you believe that he is the I am. And Israel had no excuse. When Assyria comes and raids and destroys and uh, brings them into captivity, God had warned them. God was gracious to them in that way. If you don't turn from your sins, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. Henry says, note, if sinful, miserable souls would not be healed and helped, but perish in their sin and misery, they cannot lay the blame on God, for he both could and would have healed them. I mean, we see wonderful uh, prophecies concerning Christ and his coming and the people who are not my people who will be my people. There is this very clear juxtaposition in Hosea, the wickedness of Israel, but the goodness of God. The terribleness, the vileness of all that they've done, but what God will do in the new covenant era in Christ Jesus. Henry goes on to say, he offered to take the ruin under his hand. There are some special seasons when God manifests his readiness to heal a distempered church and nation. Now and then a hopeful crisis, which if carefully watched and improved, might even, when the case is very bad, turn the scale for life and death. But God warns. God has warned that judgment is coming and God will judge according to all the sins that you have committed if you are not in Christ. Now, thankfully, that there is forgiveness in Christ who forgives us of sins, word, thought and deed, past, present and future are forgiven in him. But even the people of God still struggle with sin, right? And one way to help us in our battles with sin can be theology proper. That's a theme for today, isn't it? The love of God, who he is, what he has done for us, and also who God is as the omniscient God. And I'll phrase it like this. There's certain conduct you wouldn't do in front of a friend, right? 
there's certain conduct that you wouldn't do in front of the king of England, right? Why do we do it before God? God sees, God knows, and thankfully we can ask for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But why would we do such things? A, it exposes how terrible we really are and how glorious Christ truly is. But that can help us. God is the all-seeing God. God knows all things. God does care for us and love us. And God does see all things as the omniscient God. See how theology uh, can help us in our Christian walk. We might even forget that, by the way. And I surmise we will forget that, by the way. That idea that God is omniscient, and we can be reminded of that, that God sees all things. And one important thing in the escalation of sin, that if people are willing to do it in front of a friend, that's a big concern. If you have anger issues, you have temper, you have language issues, whatever, you do it at home, but then soon you start to do it in front of everybody, that is a huge concern, big concern. Other things, other areas, when you begin to not fear what the rest of the world might think, that is a big concern as you see sin escalate in that way. And certainly for Israel, it has escalated to that point. They don't care. They don't care what God thinks. They don't care what the people think. They don't care what anybody else thinks. It has escalated into the public realm. But the things that we do in private... God sees all those things. So it can help us. Hopefully it's encouraging to know that we're forgiven in Christ, but also be reminded that God sees all things. He knows all things. So that's Israel's uncovered iniquity. Let's then look secondly at Israel's burning adultery in verses 4 through 7. And so we see the image of the oven in verse 4. So Israel's burning adultery. Now the primary issue is spiritual adultery. They are all adulterers. Spiritual, that is in their worship. They have not worshipped God aright. And also corporeal, that is actually engaging in fornication. We certainly see Israel's spiritual adultery pictured through bodily adultery seen with Hosea and his wife, or namely Gomer, who engages in adultery against Hosea, but the extent of adultery among the people of God is not just the people, but it's also the princes and kings. We saw that in 5.1 and also includes the leadership, the religious leadership as well. Now, there's a lot of division or not division, but people, uh, commentators are divided on what verses four through seven is primarily talking about. Is it the people or is it the king's court? It's really not that big of a deal. I think there is some application to both, but I primarily think it is still the people who are influenced by the kings. So I think there's overlap, but they, referring to the people, they are all adulterers. And that includes the king and the princes. And all the people, all the people, the kings, the princes, everyone is like an oven. Notice, an oven heated by a baker, he ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. Now, brethren, there are some things that give me anxiety in life. Cooking is one of them. I don't like cooking. I'm afraid of cooking. I try to help my wife every once in a while, but I get anxiety when I do that very thing. Thankfully, she tells me to turn on the oven, 425, and I let it, I'm good with that. That's perfectly fine. And so as we consider the ancient or Eastern idea of what an oven is, I have a little bit of anxiety because the commentators were once again divided on what it means. But I do think the main idea is very clear. What happened during this time is perhaps, at least according to some of them, is that you needed to have the oven stoke and grow in its heat overnight. 
to wait for the bread until it is leavened until the morning. I think that is in view here. But the point is, it grows and it builds over time. It's not just something that comes upon someone, but it happens and has to be built. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. Once it's leavened, uh, 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 or they wait until it's leavened and then they can put it in. They don't have to keep stoking that fire, but the fire just continues to burn and continues to build and continues to grow in its heat until the bread is ready to go in. Some people think that they're perhaps talking about how uh, he's being negligent. He forgot. I don't know if that's in view, but I think perhaps the idea of that building and burning and that consuming idea, I think is very clear here, especially with verse six. And so the, the idea is the burning of the people's lusts builds in intensity, and it is perpetual. And we see this with the king. Verse 5, the application of the image in verses 5 through 7, in the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine, he stretched out his hand with scoffers. Now the day of the king probably refers to the king's coronation. Certainly a great day of celebration, could be his birthday as well, some commentators say that, but it could refer to his coronation. And the king just lets it all go. There is no decorum. There is no proper celebration and self-control. He just is happy to be among the scoffers. It says, in the day of our king, the princes have made him sick. And and we see in Isaiah 28 that Ephraim made the crown of pride as drunkenness. Because in drunkenness, in intoxication, people are more willing to talk and more willing to speak and more willing to expose things that they need to keep to themselves. And some of those things that are exposed are one's own pride. And so he's willing to boast in himself all the more. He cannot keep his tongue in check. Princes have made him sick. They've inflamed him, intoxicated him with mind. That is how sick he has gone. That is how much he has had. Brethren, we are not against alcohol. We are against intoxication. We're against intoxication in any sort of form, but especially to the idea of making one sick. Princes have made him sick and inflamed him with wine. The king's passions and lusts are on display, so much so that he is very, very, very intoxicated. He's willing to be intoxicated in front of the people. He's willing to stretch out his hand with the scoffers. He's willing to uh, engage in wickedness with everybody else rather than being the Psalm 1 man. He is the opposite of the Psalm 1 man. He is the opposite of the Deuteronomy 17 king. He is the opposite of what he is supposed to be. He's supposed to meditate upon that law day and night. That's why there's only one true king, isn't there? who meditates on the law day and night and who was never intoxicated, who never stretched out his hand with scoffers, and that was Christ Jesus, our Lord. And one thing that's in, so the lust of the king boil over, what this is all teaching us is these heinous sins don't happen overnight, but they build and they build. And we see that in verse 6. They prepare their hearts. The hearts that don't think of God, Right? The hearts that don't ponder God are still thinking and pondering these things, wicked things instead. What you love is what you worship. What you set your mind upon is what you wish to worship. That's why Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, 
Set your mind on the things that are above. Ponder God, think of God, contemplate God. And as we know the one true God, we seek to honor him. I'm not saying you can't think of how to love your spouse. That is a good thing, according to what God says. I'm not saying you can't think about how you need to work hard at work. Those are all very good things. We're talking about sinning. We're talking about making good goods bad gods, which is what they did on all and in many ways uh, what Israel did. So they prepare their hearts. It's like an oven. They lie in wait. Israel, it's premeditated. They're not just overcome with sin, but that's all they seem to think about. Their lusts lie in wait. It builds. And perhaps there is some application to the, the, the king's court. Could be the, uh, the princes are scheming. They're premeditated in their desire to take out the king. If you read 2 Kings 15, after prosperity with Jeroboam II, there's a lot of kings in succession. And if you actually read what happens to most of those kings, most of them are assassinated. Most of them are taken out. There have been schemes against them to remove them in from the king, uh, from the throne and raise up somebody else. So our hearts, our hearts in general, build like an oven. But also, we see a clear example, possibly, with princes who are politically motivated. Their baker sleeps all night. In the morning, it burns like a fire. It is burning. It is, con- it is ready to consume. It is ready to, uh, um, uh, to boil over. It is ready to devour if it gets its hands or gets its flames on something uh, that it can. It builds overnight. And Henry, again... As the baker, having kindled a fire in his oven and laid sufficient fuel to it, goes to bed and sleeps all night, in the morning finds his oven well heated and ready for his purpose, so these wicked people, when they have laid some wicked plot and formed a design for the gratifying of some covetous, ambitious, revengeful, or unclean lusts, have their hearts so fully set in them to do, uh, to do evil that, though they may stifle them for a while, yet the fire of corrupt affections is still glowing within. And as soon as ever there is an opportunity for it, their purposes, which they have compassed and imagined, break out into overt acts as a fire flames out when it has vent given to it. That's similar in the New Testament, isn't it? Starts with the mind. Think about something, you ponder something that you shouldn't, and it begins to build. Premeditation happens. It issues forth into sin. That's how it happens. That's why you have to kill it here. That's why you have to kill it in Christ here. That's why I have to set our mind upon the things that are above. Focus on the things of God. Focus on those things rather than things that are wicked and sinful. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. And he goes on to say in verse 7, they are all hot like an oven. They are ready to devour. They are ready to consume. Their lusts have built so much, so much so they have devoured their judges. And the judges here probably refers to those who would correct them. The prophets corrected them. What happens to the prophets? They are killed. Why? Because people don't like to be told they shouldn't engage in sin. People love it when they're told, you can't do this thing, you can't do that thing. See how that goes. Even sometimes when you're dealing with the people of God, we don't like to hear or be rebuked in that way. We ought to be, we ought to take it, we ought to be kind, we ought to recognize where we are wrong, but we still don't like it in many ways. Especially for those not in Christ. They have devoured their judges. They have taken out those who would correct them and make 
things right and make sure that they are following the right path. All their kings have fallen. All their kings, all their kings have gone. All their kings are removed. There was no good king in the northern tribe of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel in the northern kingdom. There was no good king, even the southern kingdom. There were a few, but there was only one who was truly good. All their kings have fallen because of their sin. And then notice that final sentence in verse 7. None among them calls upon me. We've seen their heart. They don't think about God. We've seen how they instead desire things that are not of God. And we see again that it all stems back to their worship, doesn't it? None among them calls upon me. They don't pray to God. They don't sacrifice to God like they should. They don't honor God in any sort of way. None among them calls upon me. The kings don't pray. The priests don't pray. And the people don't pray. The kings don't worship. The priests don't worship. And the people don't worship. Their desire is themselves. And we see very clearly how consuming sin truly is. Sin is like that hot oven that consumes one's life. It destroys by becoming the focus, doesn't it? Even for the people of God, we can go through periods where we are uh, in, uh, uh, taken by some sort of sin. We are overcome with temptation. That seems to be all that we can think about. We are forgiven in Christ. We are strengthened in Christ, but we need to be watchful against sin. And sometimes those temptations can be very intense. That's why Romans 6 is vital. That's why I mentioned Albert Martin. And I'm, um, I think I mentioned that in, I can't remember which sermon I was listening to, but he said, I had this temptation and I prayed Romans 6. I have died with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. I'm a slave to Christ. I'm in Christ Jesus. And if Christ is near, Christ will help us. But, you know, sin, when it becomes a great temptation, can be a very intense thing that we focus upon. Sin destroys by building. It emerges out of the heart. We see this in Mark 7 and parallel passages. Uh, wickedness, uncleanness comes out from the heart. That's why we need to meditate upon Christ, not meditate upon sin. That's why we've been transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans chapter 12. That's why we set our mind upon the things that are above where Christ is, according to Colossians 3. That's why we seek first the kingdom of God. We set our mind upon Jesus Christ. If we're focusing on God, hopefully we're not focusing upon sin. If we're focusing on what God has called us to do, whether it's to be a spouse, whether it's to work hard, hopefully we're not focusing so much on sin. I remember Pastor Butler said years ago, if you're a young guy, work hard. In fact, if you're not a young guy, if you're an old lady, if you're an old man, work hard in life. The point is, if we work so hard, we're so tired, we can't sin, is what his suggestion was. But it starts with, it starts with meditating upon the things of God. That is our reasonable service. So uh, talking of Romans 12, when he says, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And he talks about our entire life, goes on to unpack what that means, but it also has to do with worship as well by being transformed by the renewing of our 
minds. So sin destroys by becoming the focus. It destroys by building and also destroys forever. If you're not in Christ, it destroys forever. It burns forever. A comforting reminder for the people of God is that we are forgiven in Christ. We have a new heart, a new mind, the Holy Spirit, the word of God. But if one is not in Christ, they're going to burn forever. Isn't that why hell is compared and described with a fiery image? It is one that consumes forever. It is an everlasting fire. And just as their sin burns and their sin consumes, so shall sin be the reason they are burned and consumed forever. That's how serious sin is, isn't it? That's how terrifying judgment truly is. But thankfully, there is salvation in Christ, isn't there? There's some language that is used here that is terrifying for those not in Christ. None of them calls upon me and that I remember all their wickedness. But how is the new covenant described? And what are the new covenant blessings described as? We see in Romans 10, we see Paul say, quoting Jeremiah or Joel 2, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved because healing, restoration, forgiveness only comes in Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings healing in his wings and restoration for sinners. He who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we'll close this with this one important new covenant blessing. What does Jeremiah 31 say? about the new covenant. We see in Hosea 7, I remember all their wickedness. If you're not in Christ, God knows all your sins and you will be judged for it. But what is the blessing of the new covenant? Their sins I will remember no more. And that is because of Christ Jesus. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful for the warnings that you give us in Scripture, that you teach us and remind us of the seriousness of sin and what we truly deserve for all of the wicked things we have thought and all the words that we have said and all the violations of your commandments. We are thankful that we have our Christ who does bring healing in his wings, who does bring salvation and restoration. And we are thankful that we are under the new covenant and not the old We are thankful that this new covenant cannot be broken for those who are in Christ Jesus, for your elect whom you call out of darkness and into marvelous light. And we are thankful for that blessing that our sins you remember no more. We are thankful that the sins that we have committed are remembered no more. And the sins that we will commit will be remembered no more because of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is that high priest who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so help us to remember that. We ask and pray that you'd help us to be watchful. Help us to be transformed by your word and renewed by it, to be comforted and molded by Christ and strengthened by what your word says, that we might honor and glorify you in all that we do, that you'd help us to walk in a way that is pleasing unto you. Help us to use theology. Help us to remember who you are uh, as we walk this world. Help our private life to match our public life. That is so difficult for us to do, but we ask and pray that you'd help it to be the case. We are thankful that you forgive us for all our sins, private and public. And we are thankful again for your covenant promises that you forgive our sins, that you wash us afresh in the blood of Christ, and that the sins of your people you remember no more. 
So help us to be comforted tonight. For those that do not know you, please teach them the seriousness of where sin leads and what sin deserves, and please help them to flee the wrath to come in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. And we pray these things in the name of Christ.